This morning, as Mike said, we're going to continue to walk through the little book of Titus. And I've titled this morning's message, Bad News. We got to talk about bad news. Bad news is something that we really don't usually want to hear, but we expect to hear. We sort of just expect that we're going to get bad news. It's just sort of the way the world works. Your plumber almost never comes and finds you in your kitchen and says something like, you know what, I've been torso deep in your slab and surprise, there's actually a pirate's cache of gold and treasure in there. You're going to be That never happens. It never happens. And instead, he usually comes and he just smells like swamp thing. And he's like, man, I've been an hour and a half torso deep in your slab. And turns out there's like a Native American burial ground under there and you're going to have to move. Like you go, of of course we are. But of course we are. Because we just sort of expect bad news. That's how it goes. We sort of also secretly feel like at some level we sort of deserve it, right? It's bad news. And it's sort of what we expect and it's what we are typically uh, normatively used to getting. But then there's good news. Good news is almost always a surprise, isn't it? And, And it's usually pleasant like, it's good news because, like, you weren't expecting that. You were expecting, like, you know, a paper cut on the eye, and instead, you got something great. That's how good news frequently works. We feel like we should probably get a worse report, and anytime we get a good one, it makes things all the sweeter. About a week and a half ago, I went to see my cardiologist, and I just walk in in full clench mode because I'm just sure they're going to say, Mr. Barton, they call me Mr. Barton because they think I'm an adult. <laughs> Anyway, Mr. Barton, we've done a full battery of tests on you, and it turns out, indeed, your arteries are full of Velveeta and cheese Whiz. And and we don't know what we're going to do with you, but we sent someone to get some chips. That's what I expect them to say. They don't ever say that. Praise God, this time I got a clean bill of report. My numbers are amazing. And it was good news. It was a surprise. It was even pleasant. And I didn't quite know how to handle it, but I was thrilled. And you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to show everybody about it. I was texting people on the staff, my LDL is 49, baby. They're like, who is this? Delete, delete, stop, stop, stop. I mean, it's good news. And it was a surprise. And so I wanted to share that kind of a thing. It's a surprise to hear something good coming my way when I didn't deserve it. Because those of you who have had lunch or breakfast or dinner or snacks or other snacks or other snacks with me in the last several months know that I did not deserve a good report, and yet there's grace apparently even for one's cardiovascular health. All of that leads us to our big idea this morning as we're talking about bad news. Our big idea actually goes like this. The gospel is good news. The gospel is good news. And anytime you hear it or receive it, and it's not good news, you can call it whatever you like, but it isn't the gospel. The gospel is always good news. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Titus. If you don't have your Bible, look around for someone who's not paying attention and take theirs, because I want you to see this on page. Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, kind of there in the back, one of the last things that the apostle Paul writes. As a reminder, as Mike mentioned, we walked through a passage of Scripture, a a book of the Bible, uh, expositionally, word by word, verse by verse usually, and we say we want to know what did it mean to the author then, to them, there, and then. That's what we want to know because when we understand and ascertain those kinds of things, that's when we believe God speaks to us here and now and to all people across time and space. So that's what we're after. 
It's a little short three-chapter book, but it follows Paul's marvelous pattern of giving and defending and fleshing out fully the gospel. We say it all the time around here, but the gospel is good news. It's a great story. It's an awesome announcement of what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. It's an absolutely enormous announcement of something absolutely huge. And if we don't understand that, we're going to have a hard time understanding much of what the Apostle Paul writes. You have to remember, we have to remember and maintain this mindset at all times that Paul was born Saul of Tarsus, Jew of Jews, Pharisee of Pharisees, studied in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, the top rabbi in the Sanhedrin. He was a big deal. And to Saul of Tarsus and to all Jews, the world essentially consisted of two ages. There was the present age that, candidly, is bad news. Everything is hard. Everything's always uphill into the wind against the grain, and you have no shoes. That's just sort of the world we live in. There's persecution, oppression, opposition, there's resistance, and everyone just seems to be in a bad mood. But there is the age that will as yet one day come. The coming kingdom, all the Old Testament prophets foretold, all the Psalms looked toward it. There will come a time when Messiah himself will come and he will reign with justice and righteousness and peace and prosperity and joy. And that kingdom will be amazing. But what Paul says is, you guys, in every single thing that Paul writes, He says, let me explain to you the gospel. Please do not dilute or minimize the gospel to mean something like you go to heaven one day when you die. That's not nearly good enough news. What Paul is describing, we've already looked at it in his introduction to the book of Titus. We see it in every other epistle he writes. Paul seems to be saying, look, this is the age in which we live and there is suffering and opposition and resistance, but there is an age coming that is Messiah-like and it's coming And the Christ event, you guys, did something that nobody expected. None of us anticipated. It was a surprise. We didn't deserve it. It's really good news. Paul effectively says that at the incarnation of Christ, Jesus comes from heaven to earth, and it's like he puts the boundary of the divide between the old age and the coming age. It's like he puts it around his neck, and he backs up, and he pulls it across time and space. He pulls it, pulls it. And so that age is actually being stretched into this age. Now, candidly, most of us are not thinking about our life and this age in that way. We're just thinking, life sucks, I'm going to die one day. You're missing all of Paul's writing. Jesus has grabbed the borders of the division between those ages, and he stretched it back in 2,000 years ago. It was very, very faint because he'd stretched it so tight. And at his death and burial and resurrection, the cross essentially planted it in, and it stuck. And so for the last 2,000 years, the entrance and the access into that coming age is open, not just for Jews who confess Messiah, but even for French people even for Southeast Asians, even for East Texans, the way has been made open. And Paul is saying, we get to live according to that now. Now, we have to understand the enormity of what Paul's talking about, or when we read passages like Titus 1 here in just a moment, verses 10 to 16, we go, huh, yawn, what's at Luby's? But this is a massive, massive message that Paul has for us. So, We want to remember that this is good news because the gospel is good news. And then what are we supposed to do? Well, the theme of Titus is that grace 
works. It positions us to do the stuff that we were created in advance to do. So finally, at long last, Titus chapter 1, just verses 10 to 16. This is some bad news. I'm going to read through this, and then we'll unpack it. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the command of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. This is God's word. This is a contrast between the gospel and the bad news that people have a tendency to produce. Now, last week we looked at Paul's introduction where he sets the stage for the gospel. Then he told us what the characteristics or qualities or qualifications of leaders in the church are, those four broad categories. And he's writing this to Titus. Titus is what we call one of Paul's pastoral epistles. There are three of them. There's 1 and 2 Timothy, and there is Titus trying to get the churches established and organized for Timothy in Ephesus, for Titus in Crete. Now, Timothy was in Ephesus with Paul, where Paul ministers for over three years. And then at some point, both Titus and Paul leave Ephesus and they go to Crete, we think. We're not sure how long they're there. We're not even sure who actually plants those churches in Crete. But we know that Paul leaves Titus there in Crete to establish order out of the mess, cosmos out of the chaos. Now, this little passage that I just read, verses 10 to 16, I call it a bad news sandwich because at the end of chapter 1, verse 9, we hear about the teaching of sound doctrine, rightly handling, rightly dividing, rightly distributing God's word, that doctrine matters. That's how the qualifications for influence end in chapter 1, verse 9. In chapter 2, verse 1, it's a teaching of sound doctrine. This is how we organize the church through the teaching of sound doctrine. So teaching God's word matters massively. But right in the middle, we have this bad news sandwich that we now need to unpack just a little bit. So let me look back in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. We don't know exactly how long Paul stays there, what all he encounters, but he picks up pretty quickly that the people of Crete, well, they lived up to their reputation. They're brutish. And apparently when these new churches get started, there was a... uh, perception among some people that this was a vulnerable group of folks, that some people could just come in and say, hey, this is not a synagogue where they've already got established hierarchy and rule and all this stuff. This is a fresh, malleable group of people. We can come in, and for our own selfish gain, we can now wield influence. They're insubordinate. He calls them here. They don't line up according to the rule of the church. They're empty talkers. They just spew a whole bunch of nonsense and deceivers. Now, he's going to say this about three different times about people from Crete, that they're deceivers, they turn away from the truth, that they're liars. Paul is an apostle. He can get away with saying that. That's kind of harsh, but that's how important this is to Paul, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, I've said this before. I want to say it again. If you ever get invited to one of those, hard no. 
It's like, that party is not going to end well. It's not the kind of, hey, great, we'll be there at five. What can we bring? <laughs> now, what he's talking about, of course, here is there was apparently a large Jewish population on the island of Crete, and some of them came to faith, or at least initially confessed Messiah and entered into the church. And what they began to do was to immediately overlay their Jewish custom and practice of actions and doings and diets and dress on top of the gospel, and it became very bad news. Anytime you have to think about what you have to do, accomplish, earn, or achieve, or obtain, it's very bad news, because somewhere deep in your soul, you know that you can't ever enough. So this is beginning to happen. They're being uh, putting all this stuff back on time. It's interesting. Paul's not a huge youngest fan of the people of Crete, apparently, and yet he leaves Titus there, you're kind of like, here, Titus, this place is terrible. You should stay here. Uh, it's like, oh, this is rotten. Taste it. And yet, Paul never apologizes for this. He wants Titus, whom he trusts and loves, to be the one that brings about order out of this chaos. It's very interesting. In the Old Testament, the ancient enemies of the Hebrews, of the Jewish people, were the Philistines. The Old Testament tells us in Genesis that the Philistines actually originate from Crete. So there's a long history of uh, disintegration between the Cretan people, the Philistines, and the people of Israel. That's where they come from, is from Crete. Verse 11, Paul says, they must be silenced. Now the word literally is muzzled. Do not permit them to speak this stuff because it's bad news. Don't debate with them. Do not negotiate with them. They must be muzzled. Shush, shush, no more. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families. Now, we don't know if that exactly that means people's nuclear families or if that means the household churches that they were having. It could mean both. It probably does. But this divisive doctrine that is being disseminated is causing all sorts of discord among these families that are meeting together because some people are hearing it's about grace. It's about what Messiah has done. Full stop. It's over. He's done it. It's an awesome announcement. He's pulled the age back to us, and we live in it now. And there were others that were saying, that's really great and all, but you also have to this and that and the other. And it was causing discord and division. Since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Whether they knew it or not, they were trying to gain for themselves influence. They were trying to gain for themselves perhaps even prosperity by growing in authority or having uh, means. Like, listen, you probably don't know about all this new church, but we come from a Jewish background. And if you really want to know, come to our place, bring some cash, and we'll let you know all the things that you have to do to really be on the varsity of this new church thing. Paul says they must be muzzled. Do not allow them to teach this very, very bad news. Verse 12. Well, this is so great. Verse 12, Paul says, One of the Cretans, now this is a 6th century B.C. poet named Epimenides, who was a Cretan. He's from there. He has this little expression. One of their own poets, a Cretan, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now that's harsh. By the time that Paul writes this letter, there's already a word that's a verb that is being used in the Greek language called kretizo, and it means to lie. If you kretizo, it means you're lying through your teeth. And so this is a reputation they had for centuries, and they were never, ever quite able to kick it. Paul does good cultural exegesis. He says, listen, Titus, 
I get it. These are the kinds of people that you're going to be dealing with. Don't be surprised. Don't be ill-equipped. You need to know to whom you are ministering. Now, that's sort of interesting. They had a bad reputation. They were liars. Now, what's really fascinating is in verse 13, there's a little bit of a twinkle in Paul's eye, I think, here. I think he's kind of a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, a little bit of humor. They're all called liars, liars, liars. They're in verse uh, 13. Now, in verse 13, this testimony is true. <laughs> They're all liars, and that's the truth. Little bit of a, the way it's written, it's like, ah, uh, okay. So you should expect them to be deceitful, not tell you the truth, Titus. Plan and prepare accordingly. One of the, uh, verse 13, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, meaning decisively, very clearly, and unambiguously. Shush, we will not have that kind of teaching here. It is antithetical to the gospel. That is bad news. You are doing damage. You are doing harm. You are muzzled. You are silenced. We will not have that here. And that sounds a little rough. That sounds a little harsh. Paul is unconcerned. Watch what he says. He continues on. Rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith. It's interesting. Paul seems to have actually softened just a little bit. When he encountered this same sort of false teaching from the Judaizers in Galatia, he was pretty graphic. Like, oh, they want to they circumcise one another? They shouldn't quit there. They should, well, I'll just let you read Galatians. It's very graphic, very anatomical. Here, Paul says, I want you to rebuke them so that they can know who's really in control. No. So that they can know that uh, the world's watching. No so that they might have a sound faith. And the word sound there is where we get our word for hygiene, so that they will have a healthy faith. The rebuke is for their sake. Now, that's important for us to observe and to recognize because all of us are prone to error in one way or another. And all of us perhaps have encountered somebody that has gone off the rails and is beginning to teach a thing that is a detriment to the gospel. According to Paul, none of them are beyond reach. Rebuke them so that their faith may continue a return to being whole, to being healthy, to being well. That's an important thing. More on that here in just a little bit. Paul says, Timothy, I want you to know that these are the kinds of people that you're going to be ministering to. Don't be surprised. That's their reputation. I have no idea, really, what the reputation we as East Texans is in the rest of the country. I mean, I've talked to some of you who have moved in from other places like Nevada and California, and what you've all said is, oh my goodness, when we were in California, everyone was just walking around all over California going, wow, people in East Texas are so beautiful and brilliant, and then we got here, and it's even more so. No, actually, none of you said that. That's weird. You're thinking it, but you never said I don't know what a reputation is, but I'm sure we have something. And so we do want to contextualize somewhat and do ministry in a way that brings the body ever increasingly together. Well, 14, he's going to pick up speed and really explain how this goes. That they be, may be sound in their faith, verse 14, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths. I've got some secrets. You may have heard of Moses. Let me tell you about Moses. Oh, have you not ever heard of Enoch? Oh, let me tell you about Enoch. And these people on Crete are going, I've never heard of Enoch. Let me tell you about Elisha, what happened to him. Oh, you never heard of Elisha? Come, I'll tell you. These Jewish myths that they were sort of creating and concocting these cool stories but that were actually of no value, that were placing a mantle of action and deeds onto people. And it was very, very bad news. Not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. God didn't say this stuff. 
They were telling them, hey, if you're going to stir your soup, you must do it clockwise. True story. If you do it counterclockwise, God's not in that. To which I would just be shaking it. All these commands of men that God never said, they just added to and added to and added to so that there would be rungs on a ladder that only they knew about so that only they could climb to grow in influence and in means and in wealth. Paul says, no, 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 no. We have no place for that in our church. These people who, yet again, they turn away from the truth. Paul seemed to think the people in Crete were not very honest. So he says, Titus, you've got to deal with that. Verse 15 is really sort of the central verse of this whole passage, and it's been misunderstood and misapplied for, mm, give or take, 2,000 years. Because it's one of those verses that he says a thing that seems sort of like a parable or a little saying, and then we just kind of yada yada right past it. But again, it only makes sense if you understand the glory of the gospel, that Jesus has grabbed the border of the coming kingdom and he's dragged it back to our midst and we now live in that. If you don't grab that, verse 15 will not make sense to you. What he says here is really fascinating. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Now, Paul's referring back to almost certainly to Mark chapter 7 and Luke chapter 11. Now, I'll be as opaque about this as I can, but you might be thinking, this is such a, a, a random thing. Why are we spending so much time on this? Because this very type thing has emerged and bubbled up at Bethel, at this campus, and in other campuses. Our elders and pastors have had to meet for a lot of time and energy to be spent on this kind of stuff. One of our elders, who's a PhD in Hebrew study, wrote a full white paper ex explaining how all this was being taught in error by another group of people. And so this is very real and very, very present. What's happening here in verse 15 is the following. To the pure, all things are pure. In other words, just like Jesus said in Mark 7 and in Luke 11, what you take in, what you touch, does not make you clean or unclean. You are clean already because you have been touched by another. And see, that's the gospel. Just like when Jesus would encounter a leper, Jesus is clean, the leper's unclean. You can't touch the leper unless you are the one who makes things clean, who makes dead things come to life. Jesus would touch the leper, and the leper would become clean. Now, this is why I'm saying we have to understand that Jesus has dragged this age over into this one because Paul says something astonishing to Titus, to these Cretans, to the pure Everything is pure. Just like Jesus, oh, you're, you're not Jesus, but just like Jesus, whatever you touch is pure. I'm not talking about sin. We don't take rank sin and suddenly redeem it. No, 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 not that, of course. But bacon! Yes, bacon, sausage, pulled pork, whatever. Mix your fibers, mix your fabrics. You have been touched by another. You are clean. You thereby make that clean. Or, in our case, turkey bacon, because, you know, the whole heart thing. <laughs> to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, those who still think it's up to them, those who still think they have to do things themselves to make it clean or unclean, watch what happens. Nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. It's the irony of irony. This is humanism in a nutshell. This is the story of every other religion in the world, incidentally. Whatever you try to do to separate and elevate, to make things pure, to demonstrate your piety, your devotion, and your commitment, to demonstrate holiness and righteousness, whatever you do in that attempt, you actually defile it. All of your attempts to raise and to separate, you're actually doing damage. The only way to have peace 
is to receive grace. That's the gospel. He has pulled the veil to us and the way is open and it is Jesus and we get to live in it. This is a very real issue that we're dealing with even now. These people profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. Their profession sounds really good and godly, but their performance is all about their performance. In other words, their words are good and sound nice, like, oh, this is all for worship, this is all good, but where their hearts are and how they actually go about it is a completely different story. Paul says we have no time for that. They are detestable and disobedient, unfit for any good work. So you remember the theme of the book of Titus is grace works. Whatever works we're trying to do in our own strength and our own efforts, well, they don't work because they're not coming from a posture and a platform of grace. Well, this is a really big deal. Paul will call that type of striving in Philippians rubbish or filthy rags. The book of Hebrews will call that kind of effort trampling the, the cross of Christ underfoot all over again. It's that big of a deal. So instead, we simply want to hear the gospel, what God has done in Christ to redeem us to himself and to one another. See, all those other attempts are bad news, but the gospel is good news. So let me see if I can apply this very quickly. Four quick implications for us to take away from this passage. It's just seven little verses, four quick implications. Number one goes like this. Everyone thinks they're right. Everyone thinks they're the good guy. Everybody thinks they're wearing the white hat and they're the hero of the story. That's just how we work in this world. We all just assume they're right. There are very, very few people out there who are intentionally peddling a false doctrine or an errant position knowing full well that it's patently false. The people who come to your door, ring your doorbell, and hand you a watchtower are convinced they're right or they wouldn't do it. That is not a gospel. And I've heard a good many of us say, yes, but aren't we really all on the same team? No. There's a steadfast rejection of the Christ, his finished work, his deity, his divinity that is distinctly not a Christian position. I'm not saying that person is not. I have no idea. Does the Spirit of God indwell them or not? I don't know. But we muzzle that. We do not have conversation in that respect. Not at all. Our flesh and our sin nature is captured and we begin to learn some things and it is compelling to us. We think, ooh, I have a secret shortcut path. I can be a little bit more spiritual than somebody else. I can elevate my position spiritually faster than somebody else. So how do we do that? It's exactly what the serpent tempted Eve with in the garden. Hey, you know God's holding out on you. He, he told you to go this way, do that, but you know what? You could have so much more. And he scratched her FOMO. She thought she was missing out. So what is a person to do? Well, there's YouTube, of course, that great repository of all the contemporary prophets that spew all sorts of wonderful gospel plus things and usually have papyrus font on their videos because who doesn't love papyrus? You got cool shofar music and he's probably wearing a shawl and he's telling you that you have to do all these things and then there's the tassels and don't eat bacon and all this stuff. Don't do it. But you can find a billion YouTube videos out there telling you how to have gospel plus varsity spirituality. It's all out there. And these people are not all just charlatans. They really do believe that they're right. You subscribe, they get paid. 
See, human history has been one tragic tale of wars and battles and marriage fights and relational distresses. Why? Because we always assume that we're the one wearing the white hat and that we're the good guy. But the Bible comes along and says it doesn't matter who you are. You're the black hat wearing bad guy. You're the villain. But that's not really bad news. The good news is that you're actually way worse than you think and you would ever admit. And it sounds like bad news until the Bible also says you're more loved than you can imagine and that Christ has stretched back the opening of the kingdom to here and now and it's open to you. Listen, false teachers do not wear like members only jacket with snaps on the shoulders that say false teacher on the back. I wish they did. Or really cool like bubble paint t-shirts, false teacher. They don't, do, they don't even carry cards to go false teacher, peddler of error. They don't do that. They generally look like us. And so everybody believes something wrong about God and scripture. And so it requires a Bible reading, Jesus loving community of people who will cover one another and hold each other accountable. Second point, restoration is always the point of rebuke. I know when Paul says rebuke these people soundly, restoration is always the point of rebuke. It's important that we consistently convey that restoration and wholeness and wellness is always the point of spiritual discipline and rebuke. And it happens even at our campus more frequently than I would like, but it's always, look, we're not trying to march you down an aisle and shame you or put a, a letter on you. No, it is to return you to a sound, healthy faith. Just like we saw in Ephesians 4, the purpose of the leadership of a church is to mend or equip or to, to set broken bones of people that have gotten wounded or injured in their ministry journey. That's what we are to do. That's always the point of rebuke. We have no interest in shaming anybody or beating anybody down for their sin. That's just more bad news heaped on more bad news. Now, we want those who are teaching error to be humbly open to the idea and notion that it is error, and if so, to lay it aside for the gospel and for the sake of God's people so that they can enjoy and experience sound and healthy faith. Third point. This is going to be mind-boggling. You're not going to like, you're going to think, where did, he say, where did he get that from? This guy. Here it goes. Ready? Number three. Cancer is bad. That's my well-duh comment for the morning. Cancer is bad. And I'm sure there are some of you in the medical profession that will say, well, actually, there's this one kind of cancer that combats the thing. with." The I don't know, and I don't care. You're wrong. Cancer's bad. I've had the privilege to be in a lot of hospital rooms, and anytime a doctor comes out and says, hey, here's the reports, it's all positive. And I go, positive? What? No, 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 that means they have the cancer. Oh, well, Cal, I'll just shut up now. Cancer is bad. I don't want to be flippant about this because I know that cancer is a real struggle for many of us in this room and watching online, but it's important to hear this. Cancer is a problem in which something has gone wrong in the body, and the body in turn begins to destroy itself from within. And please understand, the cancer is the enemy, not the person with it. Important distinction. I hear people all the time say, you know, Jesus was always so nice. Paul is so mean. I like Jesus. Well, I like Jesus too. But Paul was Jesus' apostle, and he was inspired by, inspired by his spirit. And so Paul had no time for a gospel that would coexist with error. Of course, we want people to coexist with one another. That's marvelous. But we cannot and we do not cooperate with the corruption of the gospel. Any more than you want your doctor to come and go, you know what, it's cancer, but oh, come on, it's so cute. I think I saw a little face on it. No, 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 I don't want you. I want you to be ruthless with it. Get it out. Rebuke it. 
Get it out so that I can be whole and healthy and sound. And so we say it this way. There are three things that we do not tolerate and with which we do not negotiate. Three things that we do not tolerate and with which we do not negotiate. Number one, terrorists. I learned that from a Tommy Lee Jones movie. It just sounded good. We do not negotiate with terrorists, just so you know. Number two, toddlers. You do not negotiate with toddlers. They will cut you and take your Cheerios. You got no shot. Number three, tumors. You don't negotiate with tumors. You don't coddle and accommodate them. They will grow too strong. Cancer is bad news, but we're not left without some good news too. That's the gospel. Fourth point, the gospel plus anything equals nothing. I can't make a big enough deal about that, yet I shall not try. When we think about the gospel that Jesus has grabbed the veil of the age to come and dragged it across, and then there are those who say, yes, that's really great and all, but you also have to, to do. that's a misunderstanding of the enormity, of the engagement and the involvement of the God-man, the Messiah, who would do this for the undeserving, unmerited, who are rebellious, stiff-necked, haters of God, Peter says in the book of Acts. He has done this. And so for us, any of us to go, yes, 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 but you also have to this, that, or the other. Hebrew says it is a blasphemy against the cross of Christ. It's really good news, actually, though, that he's done it and it's finished. You and I don't need to add a single thing to the grace he brings. If you start hearing people say things like, you should alter your clothing so that God will bless you, or you should not eat that stuff so that God will bless you, or you should really study the Hebrew and forget the Greek and maybe even the English so that God will bless you, do not negotiate. That is bad news hanging around your neck like a millstone. Paul will call a defilement. Pure and simple, it's a defilement of the gospel. The follow-up will usually be something like, oh, it's not to earn anything, it's just worship, and then God will bless it. That's transactional, and it's not biblical, and it's not gospel. No, Jesus has literally given us every single possible blessing already. That's Ephesians 1 seated us with him in the heavenlies and blessed us with everything he possibly can. God's looking around going, what else can I give him? What else? Nothing. I'm all out of blessing. You're going to stop eating that to try to get something more? What a gross misunderstanding and misapplication of the glory and the grace of the gospel. The gospel is good news. Just to get our bearings on this, look at Jesus. Look at his life. Despite eating with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and bickering disciples, the only group he ever really gets consistently mad at is the Pharisees because of what? Their false teaching, trying to add rungs onto the ladder. He gives them several woe to you statements in a row in the Gospel of Matthew because they are giving people such bad news all the time. Jesus literally freed us from all that old world model of thinking. And he said, you don't have to do anything else at all ever because you can't, but I have and I will for you. Here's why this is such great news. You and I don't have to do anything now. We are his and we are one another's. Nothing. But, but we get to do all these good works for one another because we have gotten such good news, we get to tell one another about it. We've been surprised by grace, and so the works that flow out of that is what God is wanting us to do, never to try to earn his favor because we never could. That's the theme of our study in Titus, grace works. It actually means the, it's the means by which a person and people get engaged and serve actively and intentionally. The gospel 
is good news. And you and I will never grow or go beyond it. So perhaps this morning, it's just another time to remember, God has done this thing. I get to live in the middle and the midst of it and have joy. That's good news. And surprise, you didn't deserve it. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the gospel. We thank you for this good news that was a part of your plan from eternity past. That despite a whole billions and billions of people who would reject you, who would turn away from you, who are by nature liars and lazy bellies and gluttons, as Paul says, you stretched the kingdom to us and opened the way that we might be increasingly like you, like your son Jesus. And so, Father, this morning, if there's anyone here who is not a believer, would you move by your Spirit and would you give them the grace of faith that they may not be able to explain all that they've heard, they may not even like most, much of what they've heard, but they believe it's true and they're willing to stand on it with all of their weight. Would you move and bring salvation to this house that they would stop leaning on their own understanding, their own strength and strivings, that they would step out of death into life and that they would receive and believe the gospel. Now, I don't know who you are watching at home or in one of our three floors here, but as I've been praying and preparing and planning all this week, I was consistently struck that that was true of somebody that would hear these words. They need to believe the gospel, not the gospel plus anything else, just the good news of what God has done to transfer their weight from error to truth. If that's you, I'm going to encourage you and invite you to speak with someone, me, one of our other staff, an elder, a deacon, someone else that you know and love and trust about this. And Father, for the rest of us who are believers, who are perhaps prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love and to chase after myth and legend, Would you center us all over again as your people, by your spirit, on your word, that we might not step to the left nor to the right, but that we would hear your voice behind us whispering, this is the way, and that we would walk in it. Thank you for the gospel. We pray, God, even so that you would hasten that day when we will see your son Jesus in person. But until he comes, may we work out your grace. We pray all these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.